Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we are counting down the top 50 albums of 2022. It's all from Rolling Stone's comprehensive list of the 100 top albums of 2022, which I recommend you check out. It's one of our most diverse and interesting year-end lists ever. To go through the list, I have with me Julissa Lopez, Andre G., Brittany Spanos, and Simon Vozik Levinson. There's a lot to get through, so we'll just begin. Okay, number 50, Sasami Squeeze. This album is really fun, and I kind of would pair it with the Willow album. It's just people coming from different places to do hard rock in really interesting ways, just when people were writing off hard rock as a popular genre. Yes, I think when Sasami talks about the origin of this album, she's actually telling a really classic tale behind metal and hard rock. She talks about people underestimating her, people not getting her, feeling excluded or disrespected, and channeling that into this like furious, loud, wild, super intense sounding music. That's something you can hear if you go back to any great metal band over the years, and she really taps into that in an amazing new way. Yeah, and the other thing I was saying is when I first heard it, I kept hearing... Oh my God, some of this sounds like Sheryl Crow over louder guitars. And I was thinking, that's a really random thing to think. That's, I must be hearing this wrong. And then I saw that she was like, you know, it kept, I, I kept writing the songs and then they came out as Sheryl Crow pop song. I was like, oh, I guess I heard it. The song Skin a Rat from that album has like an incredible power. The title track is really strong. So number 49, Maggie Rogers, Surrender. And we actually talked with Kid Harpoon about his work on this album. This was his other big work as a producer in addition to Harry Styles' Harry's House. And it's another, I'm sensing a theme. It really is kind of a rock album from someone who did, I felt like Maggie's previous work, the production for me felt like spacey and undefined, synthy, dancey, but not really that nailed down sonically. So I thought it was interesting to find her embracing something a little bit more specific and harder hitting. Did you like this album, Brittany? She's definitely grown on me a lot over the course of this album, like rockier sense to it. It's like like a much more fitting vibe for her. I agree. There are some really great moments on that Maggie Rogers album. I think the song Want is like a time portal back to like mid-90s VH1. It has this energy that it is rock, like you're saying, but it's also pop at the same time in a way that was once fashionable and cool. And not that many people do that now. She really taps into it. There's a really liberating energy that I think really speaks it to a lot of people and connects to her fans. Here's an album that I think Simon has some things to say about. Wilco's Cruel Country. And so interesting to have Wilco after all this time. Wilco, born of Uncle Tupelo, the key band in the formation of Alt Country, returns with what they're calling a country album. Although to me, it just sounds like a very good Wilco album. (laughs) But uh, maybe break this album down for us. Yeah, Wilco did begin 27 years ago as an alt-country band, a band that kind of mixed kind of indie rock with those country signifiers. And they spent a lot of the subsequent decades running away from that, trying to show how much bigger 
their vision was than just that. And I think that was at one time kind of a label that Jeff Tweedy found limiting for his music. But the truth is, for at least the last 10 or 15 years, Wilco have been moving closer to that original kind of fountain of inspiration. If you listen to albums like Sky Blue Sky from 2007 or Schmilko from 2016, those are albums that are as alt-country or as country rock as anything Wilco has ever done. And I think this was the year that Jeff Tweedy finally decided to stop pretending and stop saying that he doesn't actually love that music because he's great at it and he does love it. And he gave us a double album serving of that kind of richly detailed, really humane, sensitive, deeply felt country rock that he's so great at. And it was like a, a pleasure to hear hear them just going for it after all these years. So this is a double album. There's a lot on it. You've got songs like The Universe, which is just one of the best like existential folk songs that Jeff Tweedy has ever written. You've got songs like Tired of Taking It Out On You. I'm tired. which is just a great kind of singer-songwriter song about feeling bad about being mean to your wife. This is a subject that Jeff Tweedy really excels at writing great songs about. And you do have a few songs on this double album that are actually country songs, like the song Falling Apart Right Now, which is like a fun kind of lark at doing like a classic Nashville sound. Now don't you fall apart while I'm falling apart Why don't you get in line But what this album really is just a showcase for the things that Jeff Tweedy is great at writing about and Wilco is great at performing. You listen to a song like All Across the World. world. Or a song like Hearts Hard to Find. Those songs could have appeared on any Wilco album over the last 15 or 20 years, and they really shine here. Number 46. So New Jeans, by New Jeans, is an EP by a new K-pop group. And this EP has a lot of wild energy to it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this is a great EP that kind of feels like it's really announcing a band that you're going to want to pay attention to in the years to come. The song Hype Boy is one of the catchiest and most fun three minutes in pop this year, I think. And number 45, Muna's self-titled album. Now, I swore this came out last year. I was so confused. I feel like I've been listening to it forever. I, is it that the single came out last year? Or is yeah. It just, yeah, okay. Silk Chiffon's <laughs> been with us for a while now. It's still like one of the best pop songs in recent years. Like I love that song so much. And I, I won't repeat my complaint that the life so fun part is better than the part that comes after the life so fun part. And therefore <laughs> they should have flipped it. But still, yes, great album, great song. <laughs> yeah, I mean they just they feel like a, one of those bands in early two thousands movie. Like they just are so <laughs> fun and really silly. It's very great that they covered like Pink Slip at a concert for Halloween. Like it's just such a fitting moment for them. But this album is just like really fun, a great mix of their incredible sort of like pop chops and also classically kind of aughts like pop rock and pop punky moments. And they're just like, just like a really fun band. Like they are having a great time with all their music and I'm very excited for to see what comes next for them. They were the first <laughs> release on Phoebe Bridger's amazingly named Satisfactory Records. 
and that's not satisfactory. That's saddest factory record. <laughs> it's just the satisfactory of them all. Yeah, and Muna, they're a band that they were signed to a major label for their first two albums. Mm-hmm. They're a classic case where like the ma- major label music industry just didn't know what to do with them, didn't get them. And it's been great to hear them finding their place. And so number 44, Sabrina Carpenter emails I can't send. Yeah, Sabrina came from the Disney World and then obviously got a big bit of notoriety being the older blonde girl that Olivia Rodrigo takes aim at in Sour as part of the biggest love triangle of 2021. She's part of the Olivia Rodrigo cinematic universe. Sorry. Yes. Yes. And of course, when you have this like moment where you're villainized in in music and by a lot of people, it's she's already trying to find her footing outside of Disney. She's trying to find her footing as a pop star outside of kind of that machine. And now also outside of what people see her as in terms of this love triangle. And I think she did a really great job with stepping outside of that and really proving a lot of her chops. She's a really great singer songwriter. She's had a lot of fun with this album. It's really personal and emotional and takes aim at a lot of this other stuff, but also broadens beyond the melodrama that she was really pulled into um, without really, obviously no one wants to be part of that. So yeah, I think this album's really great and such a great step for her to move past all of those things that could have really hindered her pop career moving forward. I would say she sings really eloquently about what it's like to be at the center of that kind of tabloid drama on songs like Because I Liked a Boy. She takes a, a situation that has to have been hard, being the other person in that love triangle that was turned into the biggest song in a million years. And she, re- <laughs> but she really makes the, that perspective, the other side of that, really come alive in a really impressive and convincing way. Julissa, I was hoping you could talk about number forty-three. Yes, that is Trueno, Bien o Mal, and this kid is really interesting. He's from Argentina, which is well known for its freestyle battles, which have gone from these small homegrown competitions to hugely popular national events that produce a lot of stars. You have someone like Pablo Londra who came out of there. And Trueno is this little prodigy who was competing for a few years and he started crushing these battles, won a bunch of them, and then put out his debut album, which was much more in that kind of freestyle spirit. But Bien o Mal was more of a songwriting effort. I think he thought much more about the production and it had a much more socially conscious message. So he has songs on here about politics in Latin America. He takes on police brutality that you see in Argentina and just shows a lot of maturity, even though he's 21 years old. So I think one of the songs where he does that is called Tierra Santa. And I love the song so much. You can hear his rap ability, but he's also just sampling Gustavo Cerati, who's one of the biggest Argentinian rock legends, Victor Heredia, who was a kind of a folk singer-songwriter, and uses those influences, which I think go back a few generations, and uses it to sing about strength and resilience in Latin America. Number 42, Soccer Mommy, Sometimes Forever. This album is so great. I, I love this album. Soccer Mommy first uh, started winning fans by making this kind of like really intimate 
singer-songwriter kind of bedroom recordings that she would post on Bandcamp. She's built up from that to be a really big kind of rock star, and she's done really creative and cool things with that. She hasn't stayed in just one lane for this album, Sometimes Forever. She worked with the producer Daniel Lil Patton, also known as One Tricks Point Never. He's best known for doing things like working closely with The Weeknd in recent years. Not someone who typically produces a lot of indie rock records. She made a kind of like bold and risky choice by getting him to co-write and produce some of those songs, and it really paid amazing dividends. Like songs like Unholy Affliction. Or the song Darkness Forever. Really broaden Soccer Mommy's sound and take the kind of some of the darkness or complexity that's been in her words in the past and really bring it to life in the sound of the songs in a really cool way. And it's always great to hear a rock band kind of challenging itself that way. And she really stepped up to that challenge on this album. Yeah, she did what I wish more kind of like indie faves would do, which was make something bigger. There does seem to be that breaking out thing is a thing that too many people seem scared to do these days. Number 41, Sunflower Bean, Head Full of Sugar, Really good New York indie band. Simon, I know you're a fan. Yeah, Sunflower Bean are such a great band. They've played, I think, countless shows around New York and around the country and the world in the last few years. At one point, around the time they started in 2015 or 2016, they were actually named the hardest working band in New York because they booked so many shows in a row. That kind of work that they've put in to hone the kind of, in a way, old-fashioned craft of just being a great-sounding rock band really bursts into bloom on their third album, which they released this year, this album, Head Full of Sugar. They take a big step up in terms of writing catchy hooks, dynamic performances. There's like a glammy stomping element to songs like Roll the Dice. There's also just like beautiful kind of like psychedelic ballads, like the song In Flight is an incredible sounding song. This is an album that really pays a lot of attention to some kind of things that a lot of rock bands now don't necessarily want to do, just being a band that kind of sounds great, blows you away on stage. They really, they do that and they do it really well. So they've mastered the art of sounding good, which is important in this particular art form. You'd be surprised by how many bands don't bother (laughs) nailing that part, but they really do, yeah. So number 40 is by Cruel Santino. The album is Subaru Boys. Since Manca Percante wasn't able to be here with us this week, I'm just going to read her entry. Cruel Santino is a key figure in the Nigerian Olte scene, one that coalesced around music, art, and fashion left of Afrobeat center. He's always been eclectic, drawing on his adolescent love of storytelling, East Asian film, rap, reggae, and dancehall. In turn, his second album, Subaru Boy's Final Heaven, is a technicolor drama that illustrates the expanse of what African music is today. He said, A lot of people worry that because of the music they make, they can't be who they are. I feel like in the next two, three, four, five years, rap songs here can actually be number one in the world. Rock songs here can be number one in the world. One of the most listened to tracks on that album is Dead Man Bone featuring Coffee. Mr. Money with the Vibe. And I'll read Christian Horde's entry on that. Asha K has become one of Nigeria's biggest breakout stars in recent years thanks to a street pop sound that mixes up snatches of local styles with big, bold hooks 
and vivid dispatches of life in Lagos. Mr. Money with the Vibe was the highest charting Nigerian debut album to ever hit the Billboard 200, and for good reason. Long on pleasure and presence, it offers everything from a Burna Boy cameo. To burners like Joha. To incantatory slow songs like Doll. Number 38 is Gifted by Coffee. And I'm just going to basically read Monka Perkante's entry on that album again. Coffee won a Grammy on her first go, and that was just off an EP. Her debut album, Gifted, delivers on that skill and promise. The Jamaican singer balances her penchant for traditional reggae with modern flourishes, engaging her wisdom with her youth. When she flows, she's dexterous and intricate. When she sings, she's earnest and heartfelt. Her optimism and gratitude remain remarkable, and the sprinkle of romance is endearing. Everything she feels, joy, pride, duty, is contagious. And one of the standout tracks on that album is a really infectious song called Lockdown. If you love me, you should let me, you should let me, you should let me know. And if you don't know, better feel let me, better feel Number 37, The Weeknd, Dawn FM. For me, the last two Weeknd albums have been his best. I went from feeling that, frankly, he was a little overrated other than his singles to really buying him. I spent a lot of time listening to this album earlier this year. I really love it. I was shocked by how much I've continued to listen to this album all year. Like, it's become some an album that I've had on repeat since it came out in January. I like The Weeknd, but I feel like the last two albums have pulled me in even more. I love, like, the new wave sound he's gone towards, this, like, really high concept kind of 80s, like, sci-fi, like, whatever vibe that he's going with all these albums and the storylines. His Scorsese-esque epics that he's been doing with the visuals and um, the aesthetic concepts of both After Hours and Dawn FM, the sort of space-agey kind of of it as well with the interludes and the Jim Carrey feature on it. I just, like, really love this album. It's a great album, and yet it has this really high-concept idea where it's like a journey through the radio station playing in purgatory as guided by Jim Carrey, which sounds pretentious, and yet also translates <laughs> into these really catchy songs that are as, as great as any pop songs that The Weeknd has, I think, ever written. Songs like Take My Breath Away. Or- I saw the fire in your eyes. Or songs like Gasoline. It's my time again. I've soaking up the moon. His ability to dial up the concept and the sort of like arty ambition while also nailing those kind of radio ready hooks is pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like the concept is really tight throughout the whole album. And sonically, it's really trippy and a very like sort of edible friendly album, I'd say. I really like it. I was really impressed, surprised. Yeah, and he's like trying new things vocally too, like on Gasoline, where he's doing that deep kind of throaty voice for it. Like, I just love that he's experimenting with what that sounds like for him. Number 36, Camila Cabello, Famia. I think there's some really standout tracks on this album in comparison to Romance. I think there's like a lot more like standout moments. Like, I love, like, the Psycho Freak song with Willow is just so much fun. Yeah. Camila is such a big 
emo fan and so I think it was really fun for her to explore that side of her musically and I would love to see more of the experimentation from her. Yeah, definitely. I did like that Psycho Freak song. I think there's also some she's trying more with salsa and different Latin genres and I think it was like cool to see her kind of open that. I I think she's always done that to some degree, but I thought the ways into how she did that on this album were yeah. kind of interesting. This definitely felt like the like an album where that's more prevalent than like a one-off kind of single for her as opposed to the last two albums. So, number 35. This is one of those bands where you actually I always say this. I have my rap about this band is you're either in the cult or out of the cult, but weirdly I disprove that personally cuz I'm wavering in between <laughs> in and out and it's Big Thief and their album title is uh, Dragon New Warm Mountain. I believe in you. We've talked about this before. Simon, you've warmed to them. You're a fan of them. I am. Yeah, I think I've probably said this maybe even on this very podcast before, but Big Thief are a band that for me didn't truly click until I saw them performing live a few years ago. I went from being like you, from thinking like they were cool to being like, oh shit, this band is incredible. Like the presence that Adrienne Lenker has on stage, the interplay she has with the other members of the band, and just as importantly with the fans, that there's a real bond between performer and audience there that's really incredible to see. Anyway, this album, which I'm not going to say the full title, this is the big thiefiest big thief album of all time. Even more big thiefy than the time they released two really good albums in one year. It's a double LP, a huge amount of big thief, a huge quantity of big thief. And if you love big thief, there's nothing greater than that. It's incredible. There, there's so much to, to luxuriate in. You've got tracks that show off kind of everything that this band can do. Some of the best stuff is there's a song called Spud Infinity on this album. What's it going? That shows off, it's like a lighthearted, funny track, which is not something people necessarily associate with Big Thief. It shows they they have a sense of humor. They're real people. They're not always operating on like a higher celestial plane the way that they sometimes are. And I I love the kind of human element of Big Thief on this album. Arguably the biggest, thiefiest album ever made by your criteria. Quite, quite arguably. Yeah. Yes. So number 34 is by the great punk band Fontaine's DC. The album is Skinty Fia. And we will just quickly paraphrase Brenna Ehrlich's entry on that album. Fontaine's DC's third album hones in on the experience of being an Irish person living in England and all the trials, tribulations, and culture clashes inherent in that reality. It's also just a straight-ahead, powerful rock and roll record, packed with James Joyce references, accordion, and 90s alternative angst. And one of the band members told Rolling Stone that the title sounds like mutation and doom and inevitability and all these things that I felt were congruous to my idea of Irishness abroad. It's just a completely new beast. And the most played song on that album is a slow building song called I Love You. So number 33, this is one, it's a country dude, and people who love this really love it. It's Zach Bryan's American Heartbreak, which I, I kind of feel like is a title that would that the new chatbot, the new very smart AI chatbot could generate, but that's okay. Yeah, so Zach Bryan, he's from Oklahoma. He's a Navy veteran. He's someone who made a huge step forward in his career this year and went from being someone who those in the know really respected him as a songwriter and a performer to one of the biggest and most respected country stars out there this year. He's a really incredible, I would say almost Springsteen-esque story songwriter. The characters in his songs really come alive. You listen to songs like Mine Again. You are mine again. Every mistake that you made 
all the people that you say we're highway boys and I woke with a fever sweating oceans again there's mirrors or heavy eyes remember when David dies to 12 pipe the Budweiser heavy for the road this is someone who really nailed it as a songwriter this year and really stepped up in, in a way that has resonated. Number 32, Brent Fiez, Wasteland. I did check out this album. I like it a lot. I like this album. This is Brent Fiez is an R&B singer from the DMV, and he's a really someone who explores the kind of like dark emotional terrain. He sings from the perspective of sometimes like a person with toxic tendencies or a villain. That's something a lot of artists in recent years have tried to do. He really goes there and he really nails it. He creates an incredible kind of vibe and mood that's really consistent throughout this whole Wasteland album. He also, he's someone who has a lot of respect from people who are, are really major presences in the industry. This is someone who, he's got like a track produced by the Neptunes on this album. There's a song on this album where he got Alicia Keys to rap called Ghetto Gatsby. That's an amazing song. Uh-huh. They said they be balling while they lying. Trying to stunt like they be on the pines. Fuck a one and die. We do dinner now. Really put together a really consistent and impressive album length project with this one. Julissa, I think you wanted to talk about number 31. Yes, Anita, Versions of Me. Anita is the Brazilian pop star. I think I, I just find her like one of the most fun pop stars right now ever. She cracks me up. She has no filter. I interviewed her a few times and she's just a really good time. And she's very free and wants to be able to be wild and unpredictable and do a lot. And I think Versions of Me is her doing that. I think it's interesting because she's doing almost like a triple crossover. Like she came out of Brazil. She started, she learned Spanish and started making a lot of Latin pop. And on Versions of Me, she's exploring more songs in English. She has like a collaboration with Missy Elliott on here, with Sweetie. And she's speaking in three languages. She's doing reggaeton on Envolver, which is a track that went insanely viral. I think it got her a Guinness World Record as the first solo Latin act to reach number one on Spotify's global charts. There's there's also Gata, which features Chencho Corleone from the Puerto Rican reggaeton band Plan B. Girl from Rio's play on the girl from Ipanema. doing a lot on here and showing how many different how many she's showing how many different sounds she can pack into one album awesome and number 30 julissa you also wanted to talk about this one broken hearts club by sid it's i think the second odd future member we've already discussed on this episode i love this album so much this is the second solo release from sid yeah who people might remember from odd future and also the internet and her solo debut release was Fiend from 2017, where I think you could hear some of the sounds and like smoothness of her voice that is on here. But Broken Hearts Club, I just found to be like another evolution for her. It's got more sort of 80s R&B influences, some spirit of Janet in here. And I think she said she was writing the album at the beginning of a relationship. So you have these songs that capture the thrill of falling in love. They're a little bit more upbeat. The standout for me is Fast Car, which is my favorite song on here. In your fast car, so kiss me like you mean it, girl. I'll turn I think it would have been 
might have been one of my favorite songs of the whole year. And then it goes into more heartbreak with more balladry and emotion. So she captures this whole arc and she sounds great doing it the entire time. And I think the collaborations on here are also really great. She's really, I think, good at finding kindred spirits and people who think like her. So you have I think Steve Lacey produced one song, you have Kalani on here, Smino is on a song called Bright Track. Maybe I'm a need to trust if we're gonna be in love. Between you and me in love. I just wanna see you love. Yeah, and I, I just feel like this one for me is one that I kept playing over and over again. Perfect. So number twenty-nine, Earl Sweatshirt Sick, and I think Andre, you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. He's one of the best lyricists out. You would probably say best lyricist ever. And this project exemplifies what he's great at. I feel like you have an entire scene of like indie underground artists who are like influenced by him, like the vocal tone, the deliberate nature of his delivery, the warm production, the, the themes. One of the most impressive rappers in the world. His past several albums, there were people who maybe weren't as engaged because they felt like the production was less accessible and maybe too experimental for them. But I feel like with this album, there are songs like 2010. Huh. I'ma need a bigger bag for the cohort. Trying to make a millionaire out of slum dogs. Bet that head crack blunt force. Cozy with the... The first single from the album that feel like more inviting and more apt for like mass appeal. But he still keeps his like lyricism at a top-notch level on throughout the album. I would just say with this one, if... You know, for anyone who remembers where Earl Sweatshirt started and right. when Our Future first came out about 10 years ago, it's been really remarkable to watch him over the subsequent decade turning into this kind of elder statesman figure. And I think that's something that, that really reached, he reached a peak on this new album of just this kind of like wisdom, open-minded expression, while also maintaining a really high level of like intricate, thoughtful bars. He's really reached a, an incredible peak and he's come a long way. And I think it's really incredible to see that. Number 28. Tovlo, Dirt Femme. Yeah, this is her first album as an independent artist and having her own label. And it's also like this incredible sort of analysis of her own new domesticity. Like obviously so many of her songs are like these like party girl anthems. Like she came out with Habit Stay High. That's like the vibe of so much of her early music. And now she's married and reconsidering like what it means and what it, what that looks like in her own life. And she does it in the most Tuvalu way, which is just like really fun dance pop anthems. And I just really enjoy this album. I think No One Dies From Love is just such a great sort of like 80s inspired synth pop anthem, like really fantastic single from her. We were so magical, why end this way? I know you're furious, you're just like me. And she's having a lot, there's some great SG Lewis features on here. Pineapple Slice is just like really sexy and cool. the same thing that she's built on but i think a lot more like 80s inspired on this album and of course digging even more personal in terms of what her life looks like at this moment and number is very simon core <laughs> shaggy indie dude alex g's god save the animals yeah man i love alex g this is probably the best alex g album in my mind in about a decade, something like that, since he was really getting started. I remember, like many people, I first encountered Alex G's music around, I think, 2014. 
a time in which he was just a recent college graduate in Philadelphia recording on this like really shitty and cheap microphone in a dorm room, but recording these incredible songs that he had written and he would meticulously record an entire song from scratch, every part, every guitar part, drum, synth and bass and vocal. His process has not changed that much since then. It's amazing. He's become this kind of not just a cult artist, widely respected and admired artist with a ton of fans. People like Frank Ocean asked him to play guitar on his album Blonde a few years ago and brought him on tour. Alex G also just has a huge fan base of people who will come out to see him at shows. On this album, God Save the Animals, I would say Alex G really lives up to all of that kind of potential that he's created for himself. As a songwriter, he's writing in a more mature, sensitive and personal way than I think he's ever done before on songs like on songs like Miracles. And Cross the Sea. He writes in this really touching way about what's going on in his life and where he is as a person. He also wouldn't be an Alex G album without some kind of like weird and off-putting vibes somewhere in the mix. He loves to do that. On songs like the song S-D-O-S, he also swings in a totally different direction. Where there's like a weird dark sense of humor and like strange noisy sounds just to keep you on your toes. He loves to do that. But the, uh, altogether, this is an album I returned to a lot this year. Really impressed by what Alex G did here. And number 26 is Wizkid, More Love, Less Ego. And here's Mankapur Kante's write-up of that album. It was hard to imagine how Wizkid was going to follow up 2020's Made in Lagos, the beloved album that launched Afrobeats to heights it hadn't seen before in the charts, sent Wizkid on an uber-successful North American tour, and solidified another new superstar's place in the current vanguard of African music. With More Love, Less Ego, he doubled down in the grooves, romance, and sex appeal of his previous smash without outright recreating it. Here the rhythms are more urgent, the sensuality is deeper, and fun is even more freeing. And the most played track on that album is a seductive song called Bad To Me. Twenty-five, Blackpink, Born Pink. I love this album. Blackpink, they're one of the biggest pop bands in, in the entire world. They're a band that has dedicated fans for each of the four members, a real kind of cult of personality around them. They actually made a really incredible, ambitious, wild pop album with this album, Born Pink. This is an album that has so much going on. Our colleague, Rob Sheffield, memorably compared them to Motley Crue. I think he's the only person who would make that comparison. But it, after he said that, I was like, wow, there, there is a level of just of so muchness, like everything turned up to 11 that kind of does almost remind you of that era of, of glam metal, except they're obviously like a very 2022 pop band. You listen to a song like Shut Down. There are so many vocal hooks, lyrical hooks, production hooks on there going on there, or a song like Pink Venom. Their songs are just like these kind of like unstoppable machines, and it's awesome to hear. Yeah, the album feels very fitting for the last few years that they've had. Like, they are working with some like legacy pop acts who are like wanting to work with them and who like want them on their albums or on their single and are like this is a very big like stadium pop 
moment for them that makes sense for after like all these huge singles that they've helped make even better and bigger because of their presence on it. So I, this is a really fun and huge album. Number 24, Daddy Yankee, Legend Daddy. And Jalisa, I know you wanted to talk about this one. Yeah, man, this is the big goodbye. Daddy Yankee announced this year that he is officially retiring from music after 30 years. Daddy Yankee is one of several pioneers of reggaeton. He started when he was about, I think, like 16 years old. He started freestyling and making mixtapes with some of the earliest producers in the genre, like DJ Playero. He's also the person known for taking reggaeton global with Gasolina. And it's been 30 years and he said this is going to be his last album. I think he actually had a really tough task on this, right? Because it has to be good. (laughs) If it's his last album ever, he can't, it couldn't be... Um, a smaller album and it had to sound like daddy yankee through the years it had to have those elements that i think made him a star it made people love him this like triumphant bark and this way of rapping that really lifts people up but i think it also had to sound kind of fresh and modern at the same time and I, he really pulled that off because there's songs like campeon which are bombastic and have that old school kind of daddy yankee sound and then he brings in a bunch of younger people um uh, for example uh, has bad bunny on it there's also a song called agua with Raúl alejandro and randomly nile rogers So I think it's a final victory lap. It sounds really good. It's like a tight album that kind of has, I think it captures his career trajectory. Yeah, and your cover story on him, which I encourage everyone to check out, you point out that when he first started making music, reggaeton didn't even have a name. So that's how entrenched he is in the very beginning of that music. Yeah, he was one of the people that first coined the phrase. He doesn't take full credit for it because I think it was just a name that was like going around, but I think he's the first person that said it on a freestyle on one of those Laero mixtapes and said something about shouting out reggaeton. So yeah, sad to see a veteran put down his mic, but if you're gonna, if you're gonna go out, might as well go big. So number 23, Charlie XCX, Crash. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that Charlie called this her major label sellout album. It's her final album with her contract with Atlantic, who she's been signed with since the beginning. And she's always had such a very intentionally strange trajectory in pop mm-hmm. music. She came on the scene a little kind of goth poppy. And then she suddenly had these like big breakout moments with Iconopop and Iggy Azalea and of course Boom Clap and Sucker was very much a traditional kind of 2000s pop album. And she was a little bit wary of it at first and did a huge weird pivot working with PC Music and Sophie and A.G. Cook. But over the years, she seems to have come around to the sound that she did early on. And I feel like this album is a little bit of a tribute to that, but also to so much of the pop music that's inspired her. There's a lot of great house samples on there. There's Cry For You by by September and there's Show Me Love by Robin S. on here that she has sampled on here and really great features from Caroline Polachek. And from Rina Sawayama, 
And it's just like a very, and she's been doing such like very weird avant-garde pop sounds on her last few albums and on her mixtapes. But this one is, feels like such a tribute to all the pop music that she is such a big fan of and loves. And her sort of big kind of, I guess, maybe goodbye to being on a major label. We don't really know what she's going to do next, but I know she's had a weird experience kind of being on a major, but I love this album. It's super fun. And I love those kind of classic house pop samples. Yeah, for a very long time, I've generally loved any album that's seen as the major label sellout album, and this is no no exception. Yeah. Uh, if, sometimes that means tighter, more accessible sounds, and I'm all for it. Number 22, Drake, honestly, never mind. This one I have to say that I, I loved when it first came out, and then I felt like the Beyonce album did something similar but so much better that it kind of washed it out a little bit for me. And then also... I actually secretly prefer, as I mentioned, I have a guilty pleasure love for the Drake 21 Savage album, as problematic as it is. So I don't know. But all that said, I think what he does here is really cool and interesting. I see this album as obviously in the same vein as Beyonce. And of course, there's been so many house moments this year. It's been a big year for kind of this like house music comeback in in pop music and all across music and top 40 music specifically. I think that's honestly my favorite Drake album in several years like in terms of a full album project from him. And I was just so pleasantly surprised by the direction he took with this. And it's just, I don't know. I love like clubby Drake. I love dancey Drake. I love singing Drake. This is, this is peak Drake for me. And I just thought, I think the song Massive is in, so incredible. Oh, when you're ready, you can put this behind us. Maybe we can find us. I would love to hear more of him digging deeper into this side of himself musically he's not going to but i would like it personally i think he should i think he had a lot of fun with this and yeah it's just it's a great album simon were you gonna add something oh i was just gonna say with drake there's a level where as britney is saying people have been asking for drake to make an album honestly never mind for years an album where he just goes for it and sings and leans into those kind of clubby dance elements that have always been on the margins of his music and there's something satisfying about hearing him really just completely go for it on this album and I think I've said this before in this podcast, what I do love about the album is after these, a series of these like sprawling, endless mixtapes that are all over the place stylistically and all over, all over the place on every level, this is so focused and tight and all in one vein, I think, and very seamless in kind of in the way of, uh, in a way that, again, unfortunately the album does better, yeah. but very seamless club mixy, and that is very satisfying. And it was exciting to hear him focus because you know instead of another like 26 song sort of mixtape mm -hmm. project meant to game streaming or whatever yeah um, and he's not someone who takes a lot of risks like he's he knows what he does well and he knows and every album is another incarnation of that and so that's why i really love this album because i think beat wise is such a risk for him like sonically it's just like, so new for him and it was really fun to see him not step too far away from what he does best, which is make club music and make dancing music, but go deeper into that. So I, I liked kind of him really taking a huge risk in, I don't know, the Drake sense of that word. Okay, so number 21 is Miranda Lambert's Palomino. And again, I'll just read John Dolan's write-up of this album. This rule-hating Nashville superstar pretty much only makes great albums, from her freewheeling double LP masterpiece, The Weight of These Wings, to her rocked-out wild card. Add her eighth studio set to the list of successes. 
The sense of musical and personal wanderlust that governs everything she does comes through in freebooted travelogues like Scenes, as well as musically freewheeling songs like Geraldine, which gives down-home sound 70s rock twists. Big Rousing Anthem Strange is a fine contribution to the Modernity Sucks Let's Do Shots country canon. And she closes things with Carousel, an acoustic ballad about a trapeze artist that might make you laugh at its low-hanging metaphor corniness until it has you choking back tears. Every show must end, every Number 20, Noah Cyrus, the hardest part. And I like, in Maura Johnson's write up, she, I like that she refers to the Cyrus clan's youngest member as if they're a band, right? which, they, which actually might. They should be. I, I, that would be sick. I, 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 it's I shocking they that. haven't done that yet. Although I think Billy Ray needs to play drums or something if it yeah. happens. Put them in the back. But Brittany, I think you're a fan of this album. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of Noah's. I think that she's grown so much over the last... She launched her solo career, uh, or like her music career generally, I think in 2016, 2015. And just being able to hear like how much she's grown as a writer and as a singer, she's just like such an incredible vocalist. And hearing the way that her voice has expanded and gotten up to par with her sister Miley, who of course has seen a shift in people's sort of recognition of her own vocal talents. Like it's been really beautiful to see her step into her own outside of the Cyrus name generally and really stand out. And I think this album was just such a, a great statement from her at this moment. I love this album a lot. I got to talk to Noah a lot about it when I think it was the first interview for this album cycle. And she was just putting everything out there. Around the time that she started working on this, she uh, had just gone to rehab after battling a Xanax addiction. And I think you hear so much of how much she was going through on all of these songs. The very first line of this album is, when I turned 20, I was overcome with the thought that I might not turn 21. And it's such songwriting. I think it's really mature. She's also working with Mike Crossy from The Arctic Monkeys and Ben Howard. And I think just really finds her own sound on this and a way to express this really emotional period in her life. Yeah, I was really impressed with this album. It really cuts deep. And I want to specifically give her credit for something that turns out to be really zeitgeisty. There's that really good song in which she duets with Ben Gibbard. Every beginning ends. You have to wake up every morning. And she really nailed it because Ben Gibbard is about to have his biggest year in like over a decade. (laughs) He's doing this tour next year that's Death Cab for Cutie and Postal Service, and he's playing solo. So it's it's the ultimate, it's a Ben Gibbard celebration of Ben Gibbard, and I, I guarantee you this causes a new level of postal service and uh, even death cab reappreciation. So she was dead on it with that one. Ben on Ben on Ben. Yeah. She said that he was the only person that she thought of to collaborate on this. And uh, I talked to him as well. And he spoke about the song that they wrote together is every beginning ends. It's like this really sad duet about a relationship ending. And Ben Gibbard thought that they were just like going to go in and he was going to do a lot of the writing or she was just going to share ideas. But they wrote it line by line, which I think really speaks to her songwriting ability. Mainstay on these lists for us. Great rapper. Number 19, Vince Staples. Ramona Park broke my heart. 
Yeah, Vince, once again, I feel like I'm a broken record, but just one of the best rappers out right now. One of the best storytellers in Ramona Park broke my heart as it exemplifies it. I wrote earlier this year about how this album reflects how sometimes home is not necessarily a place of comfort, or it becomes a place of comfort in spite of the reality that maybe it shouldn't be. And I think this album reflects it. Like, it even starts out like this peaceful, idyllic sounding day at the beach, and then shots ring out, and that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the album and the reflections within it of Vince depicting what it's like to grow up in Ramona Park. It's just a really impressive body of work. He said that he feels like this might be the last time that he delves so, so deeply into his background and his upbringing and his work like throughout a project and if so this is like a really a really grand farewell for that approach there's no question like the reason why vince staples shows up on these year-end lists year after year is because he is like andre said just an incredible lyrical presence he's there's a sense in which this album is called ramona park broke my heart it's named after the part of Long Beach, California, where he grew up, there's a sense in which he's been telling us that story of where he came from and how he got to where he is on each album since he he first came out six or seven years ago. But he he continues to kind of find new depths to that story with each release. I think it's apt to see this album as in some ways his most personal one. There's a real sense of hard-won success that he really communicates incredibly effectively on songs like Lemonade. Feeling like ice cold lemonade. Nowhere to go, we in the shade. Or songs like Magic. And Vince is just, Vince Staples, if you ever talk to him, he's an incredibly smart guy, someone who really thinks about every song and thinks about each bar and his perspective and everything he says, and you can really hear that in the finished product. Oh, this is a cool album. Number 18, beautiful album. Number 18, Angel Olsen, Big Time. Man, this album blew me away. We've talked earlier in this episode about artists who like flirt with country or say they're making a country album and it's not exactly. This is a case where Angel Olsen said she was making a country album and she really did. The album has this incredibly like rich, buttery Nashville studio sound and she really steps up to that with her vocals, which have never sounded better on songs like the title track, Big Time. Good morning, kisses. the song Ghost On. Tell me how I should feel How can this heart These are songs where she sounds so at home and so comfortable with who she is. There's a, a sense of joy, happiness, and comfort that really comes through on every note on this album. It's really amazing to hear. Okay, number 17, Megan Thee Stallion, Promising. We did an entire episode on this album with Monka Procante before it even came out. That's how much we like Megan. And she's definitely she's definitely one of my favorite current rappers by far. But yeah, people love Megan. I feel like people love her her effervescence, her mic presence, her the fun that she has on her records. It's, her albums are full of songs that are great for the parties and functions and traumazine is in that realm but it also has this more introspective moments where yeah people they love the turn up anthems but she's also a little bit more reflective and introspective on this album as she delves into some of the qualms that she's dealing with while Tory Lanez is on trial for allegedly shooting her we get a nice mesh of the fun Megan but also she's got to be real on moments of the album as well 
I, yeah, I think that obviously she's grappling with a lot of demands for both those sides of her, like being able to deliver the the dancing and like fun Megan and also the one that's responding to just like a really volatile sort of public response that she does. And so obviously this is such a great balance of her as a brilliant rapper, but also as someone who's kind of stepping into this like kind of pop diva side of herself. Like I, like one of my favorite songs from it is her. Me, me, tell your friends this her, her. And her being able to like do fit into this really big house music trend happening in music and make it her own and make it really fun and all of that. Like I think she's able to show so much flexibility in this album's another example of her being able to master anything that she wants to. Number 16, an album we've talked about before in the podcast, I think, Bartice Strange, Farm to Table. Yeah, this is my favorite album of the year personally. Um Barty Strange is someone who's been coming up quickly in the last few years. He went from releasing an EP where he covered a bunch of songs by his favorite band, The National, to releasing a really excellent solo debut, this album Live Forever, a couple years ago. Someone who had immense hype and pressure on them leading up to this latest album, and he absolutely met and exceeded all expectations with this album, Farm to Table. On a songwriting level, on a performance level, in the studio and on stage, no one has done what Bartu Strange did this year, if you ask me. Listen to songs like Heavy Heart, which was the first single, the album, the song Mulholland Drive. Or there's this emotional, profound ballad called Hold the Line. He had everything I wish I had. This is just a songwriter who's hitting on all cylinders in a way that found really incredible. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. And so number 15 is Omar Apollo, whose album is Ivory. And it's just a great album full of surprises stylistically. I think seeing his evolution is really cool, too. The first thing I ever heard from Omar Apollo was this EP called Stereo, where it was really just him with a guitar, like making these like lo-fi recordings in Hobart, Indiana, where he's from. And then to just see over time how much, how many more ideas he has, how the production has evolved into Ivory, which... As you said, it's like this like genre, it, like there's so many different sounds on here. There's so many different genres on here. And he's doing a little bit of everything. He even has one like Mexican regional song on here. He's working with Pharrell and making these like futuristic tracks like Tamagotchi. And it's, just, I think he's a freaking star. I think he's great. Yeah. There's one song that sounds like the shins on there. Like it's just, it's like a real talent, really impressive. Yeah, you know, um, just quickly, sorry. Brian, you mentioned Prince, and that's a comparison point that comes up a lot for Omar Apollo. I would say that a lot of people get compared to Prince, and when you listen to their record, you're like, oh, yeah, I can see it a little bit. Omar Apollo is one of the rare artists who you hear that comparison, and you listen to the album, and you're actually like, I get what people are saying with that. The, the level of charisma, songwriting, vision on, on that album is really amazing. Number 14. This is an album, if you ask a lot of artists and songwriters, what album they're excited about this year, 
This is the one they say over and over again. I've heard it so many times from people. And it's Steve Lacey's Gemini Rides. Steve Lacey is someone who's been building toward this moment, I think, for a long time. He started off as a peripheral member of that whole sprawling Odd Future group. He was in the internet with Sid, and he's made a number of records. This isn't his first album by any means, but he really broke through in a new way on this album, I think, just by being himself. You listen to a song like Bad Habits. which is this huge inescapable hit that he made this year. And that's not a song that he made trying to make a pop hit or trying to like craft a focus group approved chorus. It's just a song where he's completely following his own weird vision and it really hit the mark. I genuinely love this album and I love, again, it's the genre jumping and the confidence and the gifts with melody and the musical surprises. I think he he's for sure the real deal. And again, like I just love that we're getting artists like this again. Number 13, a band that's basically, I don't think they've ever made a bad album and actually tend to get penalized for it. Because when you're a band that's been around like practically forever and the story of your band is constantly makes good music, it's sort of people have trouble like finding the hook on that. Like it's not really a headline. Great band makes another incredibly solid album. But this album is really feels like it's back to their peak. And the band is Spoon and the album is Lucifer on the sofa. Yeah, this album rules. Like you said, Spoon, I think, have probably never made an album that's worse than pretty good. Every album is that good or even better. This is definitely one of the incredibly good Spoon albums. I talked to Britt Daniel when they were working on this album in, in, I think, around 2020, when they had this kind of pandemic cause slowdown. They were pausing on an album that he was really excited about and frustrated that they couldn't finish it. I'm happy for them that they did finish it. This is an album where Spoon really embraced their inner classic rock band. He talked to me about listening to a ton of Led Zeppelin and The Doors. I'm not a huge Doors fan, but I do Britt Daniel trying to sound like The Doors. <laughs> you listen to a song like Wild. Or a song like My Babe. These are just like great, raucous rock and roll songs performed with feeling. Really cool to hear Spoon do that. <laughs> Don't make Brittany and I debate and talk about the doors for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> when I did that interview, Brittany was like, you like the doors, man? I was like, no. Like, like, <laughs> this did I, inspire me to listen to this album, though, because I love the doors. Yes. <laughs> when I was 14, I deeply loved the doors. Now I like Peace Frog and I love talking about the doors, but, <laughs> which isn't the same as loving them. But I, I love talking about the doors with Brittany. We'll do that again someday. I do love that an album heavily influenced by The Doors is at number 13 on Rolling Stone's list in 2022. You gotta love that. Uh, I'm gonna go with Spoon is the Pusha T of indie rock. <laughs> yes, to totally. That's totally true. That's true. And they both made really great albums this year. That's know? right. There you go. Number 12, Always. Wow, I love this album. This is another one of my personal favorites of the year. Always are a Canadian indie pop group. They make this really classic sounding jangly, bittersweet indie rock. And they no one in the world does that better than them. 
now in 2022 for sure. I think you could argue that very few bands have done it better than them ever in the history of kind of bittersweet, jangly indie pop. This is their best album. It's their third album. It's their first in, I think, about five years. Uh, if you listen to a song, uh, a song like After the Earthquake... Or the song Many Mirrors. Or the song Pressed. These songs are so brilliantly, hilariously observant, melodically inventive. The production on this album, the sound of the band is different from their first two albums. It's a lot louder. It has a kind of like a shoegazy element. I think in our year end write up, we said, what if My Bloody Valentine and the Go-Go's were the same band? That's a funny way of looking at it. They're just, they've really, they've evolved into a really an incredible band, which is a funny thing to say about a sensitive indie pop project. But if you listen to the song Pomeranian Spinster... That's one of my favorite tracks of the year where they just let it fly. <laughs> yeah, you guess. And it's funny, but it, this is like one of the best rock songs of the year. Love always amazed with what they did this year. So another one we did an entire episode on already. Kendrick Lamar, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. And a divisive album. <laughs> In the first sentence of our write-up on it, we mentioned the incendiary debate over it. It's uh, lyrically, I would say bizarre at some points and experimental and almost deliberately alienating at points in it and also fascinating and rich in the way it shatters his myth so deliberately there's certainly a lot going on and a lot to talk about where do you stand on this album andre yeah it's a really dense ambitious album i've been saying it feels like almost like the equivalent of a book like you're impressed that it exists and that he composed it but you can't always so easily dive into it like there are songs <laughs> i'm sorry i feel like you're doing the zoolander thing be like i, I respect him not i don't actually like his music but i respect <laughs> oh man <laughs> it does sound a little <laughs> <bit> like that <laughs> oh damn i'm quite mean to come over like that but just the entire body where it's hard to it's hard to delve into like what 18 tracks of such like heavy trauma just it feels like somebody definitely who's been re reflecting a lot who's been away from the rap game as a soloist for the past five years i think that the as people have said like the therapy aspect of it, i think that's where a lot of the murkiness and the polarizing aspects come from he's just venting and just trying to trace how the familial and societal trauma informs like his adult life and he's throwing stuff at the wall and some of it is like a therapy session some of it is incisive but some of it is maybe like the auntie diaries or the having kodak black on rich spirit some of them are missteps but also i feel like i don't know artists obviously deserve the freedom to create what they want but then they also obviously have to reckon with the the critical response to it on the one hand, it's great that he had this catharsis and he was able to express everything he wanted to, but then he also just has to be held accountable for the moments where people are like, I'm not feeling that. 
So Simon, obviously, was a collective staff decision to put it at number 11. And tell me a little bit about how we ended up. It is this divisive album, but there's also a lot of brilliance in it. So how did we end up deciding that actually this is the 11th best album of the year? I, divisive is right. I'll come out and say I, I love Kendrick's music. I appreciate his work a lot, and I'm a huge fan. This album is not my album of the year. Compared to some of his other the other albums in his catalogs, I'm still waiting for this one to fully click. But I will say this is an album that had broad support from many of the people that we spoke with, both writers on staff and freelance contributors. Um, this is an album that does so much lyrically. Like Andre is saying, there's a kind of like intensity and cathartic quality to the, his lyricism on this album. It spoke to people. And uh, I'll say the other thing is that Kendrick has earned for himself a place where he has the benefit of the doubt that you give to a brilliant artist, where if you don't get the album at first, it's on you to continue listening to it and get to a point where you do get it and appreciate it. And I guess I would just say that as our staff did our year-end discussions, more people got to that point of getting it and appreciating it than not. And that's how it got there. I think that's fair. So yeah, we had Marcus J. Moore on, on the podcast who, who literally is Kendrick's biographer, and he was just a little, he didn't like the album, which was funny and interesting. But I think you're right, Simon. And I think there may, I think just given the way things go, I wouldn't be surprised in five years if there's people who say it's his best album. That's just the way things go. And it becomes a cult classic, that kind of thing. Number 10. Wet Legs, Wet Leg, and this is one of those bands where immense love and hype when their first songs came out, then some backlash, this weird backlash, but I think we had it right the first time. Great band, great album, incredibly, for me it's just how do you make straight ahead rock of any sort feel fresh in 2022? And one way to do it is just by having so much energy and humor and intelligence and coming from a fresh point of view. And they do all of that. And it's just such a fun and entertaining album. Yeah, it's, they're one of those bands that there's so much buzz and it's so easy to not live up to that buzz with your debut album. And they ha- like completely blazed past all any sort of doubts that people might have had i love this album i just they're like really funny i feel it's hard to be that sort of successfully funny in your lyrics without coming off corny and they're just like really good at that and it's just like they're really fun live too like just one of the one of the great bands that come out of this year and i'm a huge fan of this album perfect yeah, there's a weird thing with Wet Leg where they do span generations. We've talked about this before. It's, there's older rock fans tend to love them and 20-somethings love them. I do feel like some younger music listeners on TikTok are really baffled by them for some reason. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this, but the meme on TikTok whenever there's a clip of them for a while was music for people who don't like music. Whoa. And I'm like, what? Oh, what? I didn't see that. Harsh. I've seen this so many times. I'm like, what are you talking about? I think it's, I think it's like the... Something about the archness of it kind of confused certain young listeners. Usually I'm like, oh, respect, you kids are finding out lots of things. And in this case, it's the Simpsons meme, the kids are wrong. The kids are wrong about Wet Leg, at least the ones who don't like them. Yet you can be a serious band who's also very funny. I think it's hard for some people to wrap their heads around because they are very funny. Anyway, number nine, J-Hope's Jack in the Box. And a total surprise. And... I will say Army, I was really grateful that Army was very positive in the reception to all my interviews, but I did have, when I talked individually to all the members of BTS last year, 
There were some J-Hope fans who thought that I didn't spend enough time talking with him about his songwriting and his solo ambitions. And Mia Coppola, because he became the first BTS member to release a solo album. And it is a really impressive and creative and surprising and sometimes downright weird in the coolest way album. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, J-Hope, I would say, really proved himself as a solo artist who can command the stage and hold that presence by himself on this album in a way that I think really amazed even people who are fans of him. This is a great inventive album. It's got like a complicated, ambitious concept about the myth of Pandora's box. It's also just a really fun album to listen to. There's a huge amount of kind of musical invention happening on here. There's some great rapping on this album, some great kind of like old school rap happening. There's a song where he raps over the song, The Loop from Shimmy Ya, the classic old dirty bastard song. It's been my dream for many years to hear a pop star rap over over Shimmy Shimmy Ya, and I'm glad that J-Hope did it. (laughs) But yeah, like incredible album and with moments that sound like Faith No More or something like just really unexpected stuff. Great. And we should mention the RM album came out after we made our list, but another really good album, and I'm sure it would have been high up on the list had it not come out. For sure, absolutely. I was thinking this morning as I listened to Sis's album, it's, this happens almost every year. Like you, you work really <laughs> hard as like a publication and a staff to try to put together a list that reflects so many different points of view and musical tastes and synthesize it into one thing. And you finally finish it and you're like, this is a pretty good list. I'm happy with it. And then you wake up the next morning and Scissor releases like the greatest album you've ever heard. And it's, ah, oh, shit, I guess we got to redo the list. So yeah, next year for sure. <laughs> got to stop at some point. But number eight, great artist, FKA Twigs, Capri Songs. And Julissa, I know you wanted to talk about this Uh, one. Yeah, I really love this one. I think the last album we heard from FKA Twigs was Magdalene, which was such an intense album. It covered a really painful period in her life where she was going through some really public breakups, some health ailments. And it was just, it was a gorgeous album. It was also a really heavy album. And then on this, she just turned everything upside down. I remember this album came out in January too, which just felt like it was in the middle of such a heavy, depressing winter. And there's so much joy on this album. It's FKA Twigs just being carefree and wanting to have a good time and writing music that for her is, it's more upbeat. It's a little more pop focused, but she still sounds great and isn't sacrificing, I think, any part of this, this artsy persona that she's known for. And it's also just a really intimate record, too. I think there's a lot of joy in it, but at the same time, she's interspersing little snippets of her friends talking. You can feel her personality in it. And I just thought it was such a great album. I remember being so happy back in January when it first came out. And I think especially like a song like, man, I don't know, there's so many songs I love on this album. Happy Bones I Loved, which has Shy Girl on it, who's this DJ from London who's also in the same experimental vein as she is. There's jealousy with Rima. And just every song on here, I think, just packs so much joy and is just, I found it just incredibly compelling to listen to. Yeah, really, again, like the Weekend album, like this is an album that since January has really been on repeat constantly. And I think she's always made music that's really physical and made with movement in mind for her because she is really brilliant and incredible dancer. And she 
she that is such an important part of how she performs her music and how she makes her music and for her to inject so much joy into this album in terms of the idea of like dance music and how that plays into her Jamaican roots and her growing up in London and clubs in London like that all coming together on this tape is just like really sonically beautiful and it's just yeah it's like such a physical album all through and I I love it yeah I think there's so much catharsis in that too and it's there's such a release I think too and I think especially because it came out like post-pandemic I think like a lot of these albums that try to capture that spirit this one did it really well. Number seven, King Princess. Hold on, baby. The song Too Bad, I think, is one of the best songs of the year. I love that song so much. And I just think that she's like a really fun singer songwriter and guitarist and performer and just injects like this really great fusion of pop and. and kind of grungy rock to her vibe that I really dig. Number six, Pusha T. It's almost dry. And I know Simon and Andre, I know you both have a lot to say about this. Yeah, absolutely. I always say the album Biggie's Life After Death. To me, it feels like just as a concept, like a gauntlet, like they just gave him a heap of beats and just tasked him with just kill this beat in the best way you know how. Just the wildest flow, just... It Almost Drive reminds me of that concept. Like, he just got the best batch of beats from Kanye and the best batch of beats from Pharrell and just deliver bar for bar. This incredible lyrical body of work. I feel like bar for bar, you hear, like, how deliberate he is about making every single bar hit. Like, some artists, they'll have, like, the punchlines and the rewind-worthy line, but then the rest of it might be more banal. But, like, every line is hitting here. Like, he, he just... And artists truly just at the peak mastery of his craft right now and that this project represents that one of the things that's so exciting about pusha is the fact that as hip-hop itself ages we're hitting the 50th anniversary next year and someone like pusha is almost as old as hip-hop like five years younger than hip-hop and he's in his mid-40s and making some of the best music of his career and making it so relevant that here it is in, at number six on Rolling Stone's list. And that's something that we allowed for in rock a long time ago. There were people in their 40s making relevant music, and we accepted that. But it's, it's been a little bit of a barrier with hip-hop, and I just think it's exciting to see someone at this point in their career absolutely killing it in rap. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And I think, I think Pusha sees that as a challenge. He's not someone who's going to just gracefully retire. He's someone who's going to continue working and getting better. This is somebody who's been refining his craft and, you know, working to get better lyrically since he was a teenager. So he's had decades of work that he's put in. And you can really hear it on an album like this, where, like Andre was saying, every single bar hits. And he, th- there's, no, there's no dead space on, on an album like this. It's pared down to like the purest essence. On songs okay. like Brambleton. We was out in Brambleton after Pooh got hit. Club entourage in that new drop six. Ice that'll stag in the new hot bitch. On the song Call My Bluff. Buffalo shrimp from Mahimas. Coke there's a fizz of the Ramada. The ocean from hotels was popular. Pusha is an incredible storyteller. He's pulling off these incredibly funny and clever and sharp punchlines. He's also, though, approaching each of those tracks like an athlete, refining the way he just verbally and in terms of like his actual 
flow on the track. He's, he's finding new levels and new pockets to get into compared to where he was a few years ago or 10 or 20 years ago. And a lot of artists, they reach a certain point in their career and they're on cruise control. And that, that's not push it. Like he's going to continue himself to, to get better. And I think you can really hear that. You listen to a song like Dreaming of the Past. That's, you know, Pusha rapping over a Kanye West soul sample. That's something we've heard many times before. It's like, how does it still sound better? And how does right. it, and it, it doesn't sound like a retread of something we heard 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It sounds like something that's incredibly fresh and new. And Brian, I heard you laugh. Yeah, Pusha also has the ability to make you actually listen to and enjoy music made by Kanye West this year, which is something that very few people can well, do. I was also thinking that we should enjoy that as the final uh, Kanye West produced Pusha T track. We should especially treasure that. In fact, might enjoy that as perhaps the final, I forget what else it may, perhaps the final big artist produced by Kanye West for a long time or ever. What can we say about number five? I've devoted at least two episodes to this album. <laughs> I had a whole episode with Kid Harpoon talking about the making of it. Harry Styles is Harry's house. Just, just a great album and truly just one of the, one of the, absolute biggest albums of the year without doing anything that's on trend or jumping on anything. It's just his entire soul career has been just doing truly what he wants to do musically. And I was actually thinking, I was just talking about this with someone today. I'm going to make the Zayn fans very unhappy. That might include you, Brittany. But it's, <laughs> if you look at what Zayn chose to do with his musical career, just in the abstract, if he said, there's one member of 1D who's doing things that are like right on trend. And another one is just drawing on like first 70s Mo McCartney and then 80s Paul McCartney and Oingo Boingo and the weirdest shit imaginable. And it's the latter one who has huge success. It's just really interesting. Sorry, Zane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely, it's just like such a home run of an album. And I think really just it's a very easy and fun album to listen to from start to finish. I love when he goes a lot more upbeat with his music, and that's really prevalent across this entire piece. I'm a big fan of Satellite. And Cinema and... Music for a sushi restaurant have been on repeat for half the year now for me. So I just, I think like this was really clearly this triumphant moment of he's become so big on his own and even bigger than One Direction was during their time in terms of having full-on number one hit songs that One Direction didn't really get a lot during their tenure. Obviously, they sold a lot and had these huge tours, but I think he's done something that the band wasn't even able to reach. And for that, he was able to celebrate that with this album. So number four, just an incredible, futuristic, fascinating, catchy, instantly jaw-dropping album Rosalia's Motomami was just such a surprise. She was working on it for about three years. And I think it came after El Malquerer, which was her breakthrough album, rooted in flamenco. It had been her college thesis. And I think there was a lot of pressure and expectations about what she was going to do next. And I think there was also just a lot of things happening in her life. All of a sudden, um, she had become really famous. And I think there were people who were 
making a lot of judgments about her music and what she was doing. And so one of the things that fascinates me about this album is that I think to have that kind of noise and that kind of pressure, I think an artist could have easily shrunk into themselves and made something more poppy and palatable. And I think for a while we thought maybe that's where she was going because she was experimenting with more reggaeton and hip-hop artists and more mainstream collaborations. But then on this album, I feel like she just really refused to compromise. She kept it weird and arty while still incorporating some of these new sounds that she'd been working with. So you have a song like Saoko. Uh, which is a tribute to Daddy Yankee, and, and we sing from the uh, veteran reggaeton duo, we sing Yandel, um, where, you know, she's, she's singing on it, she's rapping on it, and then in the middle of it, she has this weird jazz breakdown in the middle. So it, it's smashing all of these influences together. I think from track two, you get whiplash listening to it, because all of a sudden she'll be doing, like, a straight-up flamenco song, and then it switches into, I don't know, a song like Chicken Teriyaki, which went viral on TikTok. And there's just so many different directions or so many different influences on here. And she's showing, like, I'm not going to stop doing any of this. I'm going to put everything out there and make something really interesting. Yeah, there's a few albums in the top 16 or so, as I said, that just do some really fascinating things with genre. And it's also funny that Pharrell Williams is on three, I think three in the whole list, three albums in the whole list, which is, and it's Pusha T, Omar Apollo, and the Rosalia album, which just shows his ad, his continued currency and adaptation behind the scenes. He's on the Brent Fiaz album too. Oh, um, there's and a t- the Brent. Pharrell, the Pharrell did a lot this year. Yeah, this is a big yeah, year for Pharrell. Yeah, Pharrell. So yeah, for the 21st year of Pharrell in a row or so, <laughs> and uh, congratulations to Pharrell. Number three, Taylor Swift Midnight's. I don't know. Again, we did <laughs> go, go listen to the two-hour episode we did on it. I listened but- to every minute of those two hours. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Julissa, you didn't have a chance to weigh in on this one. I feel like Britney could probably break it down better. I I don't know, man. I really love this album. And the second that it came out, I remember Britney described it to me. She was like, think Lord. What did you say, Britney? You said something like, think pre-Lord. Oh, yeah. Like first album Lord or something. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I I don't know how I feel about that. And then it came out and I was like, (laughs) oh, I love it. And I think I just found, I know that there was a lot of talk about the production not feeling super varied, but I actually just found it to be really cohesive. I responded to, I think, every single song on it. I think she's doing a lot of things with her voice that I think are different. And I think, yeah, there there wasn't one song on here that I, I wasn't a fan of. As time goes by, like I, the huge hooks on the album just keep getting bigger to me. Even just anti-hero. It's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, at tea, time, everybody. I knew that was huge, but it's just, it's so full of fun hooks and it's just, I'm anxious to see this stuff live. Bejeweled mm-hmm. keeps getting catcher to me and some of the deeper cuts as well. Just, I think it, it, still, hold, it still holds up these, week, these weeks later. I do not retract anything we said about it. <laughs> yeah, I think again, like there was, it, she could have done anything for this album. I think everyone, no, no one really knew what was going to happen next. I think Folklore and Evermore brought a lot of new people into 
sort of her listenership and new fans who learned to to like her or maybe had never listened to her before. I think older fans like really loved that as well, but also missed a lot of the pop music that she was doing. She could have made a country album if she wanted to. There was no sort of sense of what would happen with this album. And I think it's just really incredible that she went back to a lot of the synth pop. And of course, there's the 3 a.m. bonus songs that add so much more to it and deepen a lot of her work with Aaron Desner and offer kind of all-encompassing sides of who she is musically at this point in her career. And yeah, this album still is really good. And my one skip track is a lot of people's like favorite track on the album. Like, I think there's just so much to dig it's into. Still, your skip track? You haven't uh, you haven't warmed up yet? Mine, it's Sweet Nothings is yeah, the no, one. But you yeah, still okay. Yeah, yeah, you <laughs> I just want to be clear. Yeah. Oh, I want no, you're, that song. You're <laughs> it's not for me. No, I, oh. come on. I spy with my little tired eye, tiny as a firefly, a pebble that we picked up last July. Tomas also said this is skip People song. People love that song. I think you guys are so wrong about it. I had people um, say they did not like the album, but they loved that song. And I was like, this is the one song that I absolutely cannot play. It is I, so boring to me. I do want to, maybe, I don't know if you saw the the thing, the mashup that uh, I got from someone did on TikTok where Antihero is now a ska song with a Mighty Boss Tones mashup. <laughs> yeah. And it's awesome. Maybe if they did that for Sweet Nothington, that would win you over. If there was no. like a, a, a ska version, no? Okay. Stop. <laughs> I'm defunding William Bowery. <laughs> I think, yeah. But I do want to shout out the person on Twitter who was actually worried that Taylor would listen to me and play it, play the song as a Mighty Boston's mashup. I wish I had that kind of power. Um, but yes, even though I did send it to her camp, I will admit. But <laughs> in hopes that, that we get just one performance. I just met the run, like the runway. We'll come back with the guests and all of Mighty Boston's will sashay along it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the new squad is the Mighty Boston's. It's going to be great. That's neither here nor there. Number two is an, is one of the only albums that makes that vastly managed to outshine Taylor and everybody else in the world on streaming this year. And it's a great album. It's the latest Bad Bunny album. And Julissa, I know you wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, number two is Bad Bunny, Un Verano Sin Ti. Awesome. I have to be 100% honest. I think when I first heard the album, I didn't immediately respond to it. I think I felt like I was coming off of the high of El Ultimo Tour del Mundo, which is an album that I love where he plays with a lot of rock sounds. And that to me felt like such a huge surprise. And then on this one, I think it was sounds that I maybe to some degree had heard before, but I think the context that he puts them in and the collaborations that he adds on here are really spectacular and I think really changed my perspective as the year went on, especially because he's working with a lot of indie artists like Bomba Stereo and La Marias and Buscabuya. And I think bringing these sort of like bright indie sounds and mixing it with a lot of Caribbean sounds that I think are nostalgic for him. A lot of the album was inspired by summers that he spent in Puerto Rico as a kid. And I think what changed it for me, too, was seeing him live at Yankee Stadium. It was one of the craziest shows I'd been to. I think mm. seeing the songs live gave them like a whole, like, it, it, they just made, they brought like this new depth for me. And I think also the political resonance it's had throughout the year. A song like El Apagón, for example. Puerto Rico está bien cabrón, ey, está bien cabrón. De Carolina sale reggaeton, en los hijueputas de Bayamón. When you hear it, it's this electronic experiment, and it's really unique and different. But I think Bad Bunny is talking about a lot of the issues that Puerto Rico has been facing, bringing up the, he's bringing up how 
Puerto Rico's power grid has been failing for years because of infrastructure challenges and issues that it's had. And I think that song is one that he, when he released the video for it, he released it with an entire like 30 minute documentary about basically showing why Puerto Rico is a colony of the U.S. and really digging into these political issues that I think the first time I listened to it, that didn't come across to me. And then I think he was really able to bring that out as more time went by. Absolutely. And it's hard to underscore just how huge this album was globally. It was, I believe, the number one streaming album in the world this year. Yeah, man. It's the third year that Bad Bunny is the most streamed artist on the planet. Third year in a row. Um, Yeah, I I think it just really connected with a lot of people on so many different levels. Like, there's club songs on here. Uh, Like I said, there's songs that have um, a political resonance. I think that there's songs that, you know, you kind of like put on in the background and like want to chill to because they do have sort of these more melodic indie sounds. So I think it just met people at a lot of different levels and it was huge. And it bothered me how, I think there was like a conversation toward the middle of the year. Ah, there's no like big albums this year. And I think people could maybe push this one aside. I think because of the language, I don't totally know, but I think for me, like without a doubt, this was the album of 2022. Right. It's so wrong to treat the biggest artist and the biggest album in the world as some kind of niche (laughs) when it's literally the biggest thing in the world. It's just as simple as that. But yeah, speaking of big, and this is another one that I think I've done more than two episodes on, Beyonce's Renaissance. And it really genuinely is a masterpiece. And one of the things we learned in our episodes on it is, is, how, is that she's been working on songs for this album going back to 2012. This has been, this is weaving together years of work. It's an incredibly strong album. Someday she's going to put out the videos, the, the visual version. Uh, One there's day. A, there's a joke among fans <laughs> about that is going to, that someday that's going to come out. But just an, kind of an awe-inspiring album in its in its depth, there's just so much going on in the layers of meaning and samples and references, everything interwoven. It's extraordinarily impressive. Yeah, I wish I could get sick of this album. I don't think I, I've put it on every single day since it's come out. Like, it's really just, like, gross at this point, like, how much I've been listening to it. It is, I like, I was just, like, so, ex- I don't know. I'm always very excited for a Beyonce album, I think, the since lemonade obviously she's done a a few other she did an album with jay-z and like she did the lion king sort of complimentary album to it and to the film and i was just itching to hear more kind of solo beyonce and this album goes well beyond anything i could have dreamed of or hoped for i think for any beyonce fan i think this was just like such a wonderful statement from her it's such a beautiful tribute to just like black queer communities to her mom's best friend who was like an uncle to her and her sister and just was a big part of her life and her family who died from aids and a tribute to the music that he had exposed to her really young and it's just so celebratory so beautiful she does this incredibly well i love beyonce disco queen i love the donna summer sample on summer renaissance the song heated got a 
connect like the one drake co-write that kind of connects this to honestly never mind is the drakiest lyrics you can put on a beyonce song fan theory is that he like she brought him in to work on that song and then he literally just decided to do that whole album i wouldn't doubt that at all yeah yeah i wouldn't doubt that at all in fact there's a certain logic to it but it's also just like beyonce's having so much fun lemonade as the last solo album before this that album is so heavy and in the same way with fk twigs there's such a heaviness to that there's so many of these kind of really personal relationship problems that she's divulging to us on lemonade and for this to come back and be so celebratory and fun and like really made for ballroom culture made for just like the history of black dance music it's just like really like through and through amazing Beyonce is having like hearing her have so much fun on the album is incredible like her kind of doing like the ballroom announcer part on the heated exit and on pure mm. honey that's my favorite I mean, part fan me off I'm hot 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 like stolen Chanel lock me up in jail cuss me please cause this ain't fair dripped in my pearls like Coco Chanel it's just she's just like having a good time and I love ha- hearing Beyonce have a good time and I think that's it's just a it's just like a perfect album there's no bad songs yeah. on there not a single song is bad it's incredible yeah i am with you i love how dense it is too i feel like this mm-hmm. and rosalia they're so dense with references that are just used so well and i think that just the collaborators that she packed in for this are incredible Kelman duran is one i just on that on the first cut who did some of the production for that and i remember there's just like a couple seconds of dembo beat that i i was like did i just hear that And I think it's just like one of the ways where she sneaks all these different things into every track. And the more you listen to it, the more you hear these different elements. Yeah, you learn that there's things that have been for eight or 10 years uh, in her vaults. You understand how she's had time to lay it, how she's had time to layer in all this stuff. It's just astonishing. I also think it's a rare case where the best album of the year is also possibly the best album cover. Yeah. I don't know if there's much competition there. Yeah, I love the album cover so much. All the visuals we have gotten in terms of photos of Beyonce looking glamorous have been incredible. I would love to see videos, but no pressure to Beyonce. It's going to be a race between Taylor's feature film and the visuals for Renaissance. Well, also, supposedly, so not supposedly, Beyonce confirmed there's two other albums. Um, that's right, Renaissance that's right. is part one. And so I'm just really curious, like, what that's going to mean. Obviously, people have a lot of ideas and rumors about it. I just, I'm ready to hear or see anything else from her. This album, all this did was make me hungrier for constant Beyonce music and ma- anything else she can give us. So I'm ready. Do we think that parts two and three are more of the same genre or possibly totally different genres? So the rumors are that they're different genres. A lot of people have, there's been random sources here and there from people, but nothing really confirmed, but it seems like pretty on the same page from a lot of people that it will be different genres, but I have no idea. I'm kind of, I would love for more sort of house disco Beyonce, but I think like the idea that a lot of people had put out there was that it was like reclamation of blackness in different genres. And so there was like one rumor where she was going to do like a country album and a rock album too, which I mean, I would eat those up too. I'm not going to complain, but I'm ready for anything else. Wow. Renaissance for prog rock. Just really. (laughs) Not not, no prog rock, but let's not put that in the world. (laughs) I'm trying to think of. I need a Beyonce like fish collaboration oh, oh, Re- renaissance four prog rock renaissance five jam bands yeah um renaissance six of course ska so it, i think it's all going to be great 
And that is, in fact, our show for today. Thanks so much to Brittany, to Lisa, Andre, and Simon. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a nice review and five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts in particular. That's always appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.